0: This episode of Rabbit Hole was brought to you by the Taborites. The Taborites were a 15th century militant Christian anarchist movement originating in what is now the Czech Republic. The Taborites waged an aggressive campaign and captured several towns in their area, establishing egalitarian communities in their wake. To quote the Taborites, All shall live together as brothers. None shall be subject to another. The kingdom shall be handed over to the people of earth who will know nothing of mine and thine. The Taborites were eventually defeated at the Battle of Lipany in 1434, but their pamphlets continued to circulate and inspire uprisings for decades to come. If you'd like to join the Taborites in supporting Rabbit Hole, please go to patreon.com slash rabbit (music) hole podcast. Everybody. Hello, Welcome to Rabbit Hole. This is Sparky Abraham here with my co-host and good friend, Pete Davis. Hello, Pete. Hello. So glad to be here deep down in the rabbit hole. And this is episode three, probably, of the series, Is School Good? Pete and I are joined today by someone we're very excited to talk to. We have Derek Gottlieb with us. Uh, Derek Gottlieb is assistant professor at the University of Northern Colorado School of Teacher Education. He's the author of several books, most recently, A Democratic Theory of Education Accountability. Welcome, Derek. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. longtime listener. Not really, but I'm very (laughs) excited to uh, talk to you about whether or not school is good. Yes. You know, I I would be very impressed if you had listened to the the previous episodes of Is School Good, since they have not been released yet. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. As we were kind of talking about before we started recording, we're at the beginning of this journey into education, and all of the different kind of swirling pieces, one of our, I think, motivating questions, and, and sort of the the preliminary question here, which I think you really get at in your book, is what the hell are we trying to do? Like, what is school for? What's the point? And so maybe, like, can we just start there? Like, in your view, what what is school for? That is the largest possible question. So I uh, thank you for
1: uh, pitching that at me. Uh, school is for a lot of things and it really depends on who you're asking this question to so you're you're asking me an assistant professor of education what school is for so I'm going to take sort of a university professor perspective which is to say uh, school is fundamentally for the formation of new children and citizens in the sort of public community that we all live in. It's for the reproduction of what we take to be, I use we, you know, largely and loosely, what we take to be important elements of both sort of personal morality, as well as uh, social factors. And it's for the continuation of a sort of civilizational species level body of knowledge and form of accessing new knowledge slash producing new knowledge is, you know, that's the short version, I would say.
0: So is it fair to say it's kind of, <laughs> uh, you know, is it for making good people? Is it for making people like, is that I mean, you see, it seems like your description is kind of just bringing in the still the most basic questions unanswered about what that means, right?
2: I don't know if this is like a common thing in ed school, or I just read it somewhere, which is school is applied philosophy. You know, because it's like if you have a theory of the good life, you bake it into what a school is. Oh, so 100%, all of our like, fights. Yeah.
1: Yep. I mean, the, the the essential thing that current debates, I feel like, are getting wrong. And I'm thinking about debates over whatever the Manhattan Institute means by critical race theory or the new sort of legislation in Florida and Texas and other places about sex ed or like Ross Douthat in the New York Times What people are looking for doesn't exist, which is an apolitical version of education. Education is intimately connected to a view of the good life, what it means to be a good person, which is inherently bound up in what we would take the political to be. Mm -hmm. At the largest level, I have this weirdo idea that politics, aesthetics, and ethics are all one thing and all of those sort of come together in education but don't ask me to try to explain that because i don't think i'm i'm there yet.
2: <laughs> Wait, what were the three? Politics and ethics or was there a third one
1: too? Politics, ethics and aesthetics. aesthetics. Are oh all wow, the no same i'm thing. i'm
2: down. You know, it's it's the uh western enlightenment project trying to separate out everything and put them quarantined in separate spheres when really they all run together.
1: Yeah, or like perhaps like it is possible to know each one of those things in isolation, but it's not possible to live with those things in isolation from one another is the way I would like to put it. And school is the place or sorry, education is the sort of aspect of social life in which those things all come together invariably. So we can like pretend that we're not dealing with politics, but we can't actually not deal with politics in an educational space.
0: Right. And, and I, I think that a lot of the, these points and and what Pete just said too, are things that you really kind of dive into in, in a couple of your books, the latest book about accountability, Mm -hmm. I thought was really interesting. You know, it, it sort of pivots, I think, in your words on this concept of Campbell's law, right? Oh yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Which I I thought, you know, I, I mean, on the one hand, like you really do go kind of deep on these accountability questions, but the, the pre-existing question for accountability, of course, is like accountability, you know, both to whom, but like for what? So you kind of have to know what you're trying to achieve. And I thought the application of-
2: Could you tell us what Campbell's Law is? Yeah. Yeah,
0: So I was going to ask, yeah. So like what, you know, how does this, what is Campbell's Law and and sort of how does it fit in here?
1: Yes. Campbell's Law uh, was formulated by Donald Campbell in 1975, an educational measurement guy at Michigan State University at the time, I'm not going to be able to remember or like to reconstruct his exact words, but it is essentially like the more a social or an indicator, a quantitative, an indicator of a social process counts for social decision making, the less trustworthy that indicator becomes. So in the world of education, there's been a lot of stuff, especially recently about with test optional admissions policies and higher education and that kind of thing uh, there, which builds on like 20 years worth of teacher and parent and student dissatisfaction with the use of standardized testing for accountability purposes in education the danger with all of that is that standardized whatever we want to measure with a standardized test with any test is going to be a limited subset of the domain of interest so if we want to measure reading you know we have to like figure out what reading is, design a test to measure it, but that test is going to be like 20% vocabulary and 35%, whatever, multiple choice reconstructions of like what this paragraph means, et cetera. but that's not everything that we mean by reading. And so if those assessments, the structure of that test uh, becomes sort of predictable and knowable, then it becomes possible to teach to it. And so at that point, the more sort of like teachers' jobs or schools remaining open come to depend on performing well on that kind of assessment, the more in heavily incentivized teachers and schools are to tailor their instruction specifically to this content. These tests are valuable because they tell us something about the larger concept of reading that they're supposed to measure, but precisely because they count for so much, they in fact narrow the concept of reading. That actually occurs or gets taught in school, and so Campbell's law talks is is really about you know if we want to make broad inferences about how well teachers are teaching, how well schools are serving the public, and if we want to define those in terms of these very very narrow measures, then it becomes straightforwardly impossible to make good judgments on that basis.
2: Could I give an example and see if this is a Campbell's law thing? So yes. So, if there was a basketball team and you wanted to measure basketball skills mm-hmm. and they said, oh, we don't have time to like watch a 100 games. So we're just going to do free throws and see whoever does the best free throws. We're going to give them a score and then we're going to assume that means basketball skills. Then they're going to make the team. Everyone's going to just spend the summer practicing free throws and not dribbling. And, you know, passing and, you know, uh, uh, pick and rolls and the like. And then they're like, oh, OK, well, we're not doing passing. So we'll do we'll do free throws and passing half and half. And then they're like, OK, we're going to do just do free throws and passing. Then we will all when really the only way to measure basketball skills is kind of like watch 20 games over the long haul and kind of take in, of you know, thousands of measurements to get a vibe of what something is. Is that like Campbell's law in action?
1: That is, in fact, Campbell's law. You're describing the history of basketball analytics. Uh, one of my uh, good <laughs> friends, shout out to Seth Partnow, used to work for the Bucks front office, and he came out of basketball blogging in order to get that. And that, like, like the essential problem in, in basketball analytics is like, how do you measure individual defensive prowess when it's such sort of a team game? You know, so like, but you're also like, you're describing. As well, something like in in professional football, you see the same thing where like the 40-yard dash, like how fast somebody runs this particular event at the Combine has some kind of relationship to whatever we might mean by game speed, but it's certainly not a one-to-one relationship. And so between like the end of the college football, one's final college football season and the Combine, athletes train to run as fast as possible in a straight line for 40 yards because they know that like getting the, the fastest possible time will mean X additional millions of dollars in their sort of uh, initial contract. But that X millions of dollars is based on the assumption, which is not true, that this is like a perfectly reliable proxy for how fast somebody will run when they are also like making cuts and being a wide receiver or running back, et cetera. And so, yes, that is a good example of Campbell's law. The rewards follow the measure, not necessarily the thing that it is being measured.
0: Right. That that example is a good illustration of that aspect. But it's also like that example and Pete, the way you set it up, assumes that there is sign kind of some measure of success that that you can look at overall to say like, okay, well, you know, we can at least look at a basketball team play a thousand games and like see what their record is. But for education, it's not it's not clear to me that you can really do that, right? Because that depends on what you think a a good person in a good society is. The
2: the equivalent would be like, it's a basketball team, but then the scoreboard changes all the time and the sport changes all the time. And some people are arguing that it's not even meaningful and others are arguing something else is meaningful. So it's like a thousand X more complicated with school.
1: (laughs) It would be like, uh, this is Jack Schneider's favorite example, but it's like, it is like doing sports analytics, but for Calvin Ball is, is what it would be like. <laughs>
2: that's amazing. Yeah, I that's perfect. That.
1: It like <laughs> the rules change, the object changes, measure something. <laughs> yeah.
0: So to close this out, because I, I do want to kind of blow out beyond this too, but like, what is, what is your answer to this accountability problem and how, how to kind of deal with Campbell's law? And like, what do you think this should look like accountability? And, and then I think that hopefully will lead us into what you think sort of education in school should look like more broadly.
1: Sure. I found myself like I got into thinking about educational accountability because it was so because of the particular time that I was in grad school right at the start of Obama's first term when they were when finally these education reform policies that had been in the air for a long time were getting like a big national hearing and were tied to sort of federal waivers from No Child Left Behind's accountability policies as long as states would make these various sorts of reforms to their laws, which they did. And to me, it was very obvious that this was going to create more problems than it solved if we take the idea seriously that we want to hold schools and school personnel accountable for the things that matter to us. So I got into studying accountability because I was just sort of angry and frustrated at what I was seeing happening in the policy world. But later on, it became relatively clear to me that there was no alternative sort of It's not that we're using the wrong measure. It's that we have the wrong idea of what measuring would be like in this context. Like it's one thing to be like, you know, we're misusing the information that we're gaining for the, from the 40 yard dash, but there really is such a thing as game speed. And it's another thing to be like, you know, we're using the wrong measure of school quality, but there really is such a thing as school quality out there that we might be uh, measuring differently. So accountability became a way for me to think about the way that public schools in particular are rightfully responsible to a wide variety of stakeholders who might have very different ideas about what they should be doing and very different ways of being interested in how public schools matter. So schools become a kind of medium to think about it, uh, or what uh, Stephen Klein in the work of politics calls a worldly mediator of our political lives. They're things that a lot of different people care about for a lot of different reasons. And our ability to sort of think together about how schools matter, not only to ourselves, but also to other people who are situated differently with respect to the schools, might be a way of revitalizing a certain form of political life that I feel like is perpetually in danger of slipping away from us if it has not completely submerged itself from view already, and, and what is that? I, did I answer what, your question?
0: <laughs> I think so. But what, what is the what is that form of political life? Form of political life
1: uh, that would take value pluralism seriously, but also sort of a commitment to uh, neighborliness, let's say, seriously as well. So it is a sort of anti neoliberal conception of the human that also has some sorts of uh, resonances with like Burkean conservatism. Oddly, But also doesn't like take a like a super strong stance on which one of those things is right. It's just like it's sort of like the question of whether it is more correct to see myself as sort of an individual in the sense of being like a pre-political entity who needs to constantly connect myself with some community or as a product of a community within which I was born and raised and within which I live right now is a constantly open question that I, that like sort of has to be settled. And if I, if we settle on either one of those answers to the exclusion of the other, we're likely to go astray. Hmm. So what I'm saying is that school becomes just in a, like in an inevitable way, a place like one of the primary sites where this kind of thing gets worked out. Yeah.
2: Oh, wow. So, so it's not, it's not, okay. I, I, you know, I, I'm trying to get it more concrete. Even though you know, I love the abstract so there. <laughs> um, but it's it, tell me if I'm hearing this right. It's it's like you know what tech, neoliberal technocracy is is a bunch of elites in a room decide some outcome and then the only point of everyone else is to become materials optimizing around that outcome so so people over at the department of education or whatever or more 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 likelihood you know some foundation from a tech billionaire that decides our education policy or something the waltons or something they decide what schools should be and then you can suddenly measure, you know, in Lawrence, Kansas, or in the Bronx, or in Tallahassee, is this school optimizing for our venue of this? There's an alternative, which is the school is like a town hall. Yes. It is a constant fora at which we're all, you know, it, it is the fight, the fight itself. You going to the school board meeting and being like, kids should be like this, or kids should be like that, or the kids themselves saying, we should be like this, we should be like that, is the success of it it's you're you're converting it from a object to a sub like intra subject is am I yes. right?
0: It's a process, not a thing. It's a process, not a thing.
1: like the school building is a place where this process happens. I also want to be like so so yes, exactly. I would want to like come back to like three different things about like the the conception of neoliberal technocracy, I think is right, but also involves a lot more sort of uh manufactured consent from the public than uh that way than the way that you described it is characterized. And I can go into a little bit more detail on that, please. but also in my, like when you, when you said like, like it's like a town hall meeting, like that's there's Jack and I have been at work on a paper for like more than a year because neither one of us can dedicate the uh, time to do it. That is literally called the new town meeting, which is trying to say like how schools can function as, you know, a site for political life. But I don't imagine that being in the model of the kind of school board meetings that we have seen that is too high a level for me like that's something has already failed at a much lower level if we're having sort of violent outbursts or parent objections being shouted out at a school board meeting i imagine a much more sort of proactive reaching out into the community sort of thing happening at the level of the school so that parents have a good deal more voice And uh, like at the level of their local schools, rather than at the level of sort of like a district governing uh, school board. I think that like what we see in school board outbursts is largely a lot. Well, I mean, there's a lot of. Uh, things going on. But one of the things that's going on is a sort of manifestation of the lack of input that parents have a little bit closer to home. And it would be a lot less that energy would be a lot less destructive politically and potentially a lot more constructive if it would if there was a more local outlet for it.
0: Yeah, it's a big difference. But there's a big difference between yelling at people who have power over you versus participating in a process where you're exercising power.
1: Right. The neoliberal technocracy thing, if I can come back to that for like one Uh, quick thing if we're going down the rabbit hole. One of the ways that in education in particular, this sort of technocratic vision of how school accountability will work and what school is for is specifically tied to a vision of social justice that emerges from the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Uh, And specifically from Lyndon Johnson's uh, to fulfill these rights graduation speech at Howard University in the uh, spring of 1965. This was only I can't remember if it was a couple of months after or a couple of months before the first elementary and secondary education act was passed that's like that's the precursor of NCLB and ESSA and all the like big federal legislation that continues to govern education this vision of social justice basically said that the main problem in education is the black white achievement gap that black People are doing poorly, are being left behind in sort of the post-World War II boom years, specifically because they lack the training and the skills, I'm using Johnson's words here when I say this, to fully participate in the labor market. The reason that they uh, lack these tra- this training and skills is a holdover from the 100-year-old or the 100-years-in-the-rearview-mirror evil of slavery and subjection and like present day prejudice and the way that we can get over this hump is to rededicate ourselves to educational goals to to specifically providing black people with the training and skills that they've heretofore lacked and the The idea is that, like once schooling becomes equal across racial lines in particular, then it's important that the individuals with Disabilities Education Act and like the bilingual Education Act and all that kind of stuff gets passed after that because these ways of being different just get mapped onto this original sort of black white dichotomy. anyway, The way that we achieve social justice is by making these two groups equal because once we remove the the barriers to sort of equal access to prestigious jobs in the labor market, then yada 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 people are just going to get what they deserve in like a perfectly meritocratic perspective so when you see like the like technocratic elites or whatever being like this is what school is for they're tapping into like a very deep sort of uh uh well of this is how we do social justice that has been around for generations and it's tied to imbibed ideals about being able to like pull oneself up for one's bootstraps or being able to rise through one's own talented effort etc which is to say that they're they're not coming from nowhere like these uh they're not simply imposed on an otherwise sort of apolitical populace they're using these like very deep tropes in order to be like this is the only thing that school is for. This is mainly what school is for. This is why ever there's a national interest in schools, uh, because it can promote uh social justice. And then they're like, look, we know that we know that we can measure reading and math relatively well, that is relative to something like art. And we know how vital these are as necessary conditions for success in sort of an information age. So we're just going to be like, once we can tell that schools or teachers are providing the same kind, the same level of education on these sort of narrow grounds to everyone, then we can be like,
0: we now live in a fair society. And like, what you have is what you deserve. Right. And and just to kind of draw the link to one of my outside professional interests, just to note, right, this is 1965 Lyndon Johnson, which is also the same time as the Higher Education Act is passing, creating the student loan student financing system, right, Uh, which is operates on essentially the exact same logic. In fact, if it's not out yet, it's coming out really soon. I'll just plug
1: a book, which is Beth Pop Berman's Thinking Like an Economist, which is brilliant. It's the story of how an economic style of reasoning, specifically like a sort of MIT, Harvard, Chicago blend of economic, microeconomic reasoning, moved from sort of Rand and World War II throughout sort of government agencies in which it just becomes the sort of background common sense. There was like, there was a chapter in her book. It, she doesn't go deeply into the Higher Education Act stuff, but like there was a moment when it was like, are we going to fund institutions directly or should we take a more sort of like human capital student loan approach? And we all know who won that one. But that history is interesting.
2: Amen. You know, one metaphor I like using for the difference between like democracy and fairness is fairness is we're going to freeze the rules of the game and we're going to make sure that everyone has, you know, Obama used to say this line all the time, everyone gets a fair shake, everyone has a fair shot, everyone plays by the same rules, which itself is an improvement over raw power aristocracy of the right like the right says we want to play by our own rules we want it to be completely unfair we want it to be a you know some some want it to be a white supremacist society and so it is an improvement to go everyone plays by the same rules everyone has a fair shake everyone has a fair shot and that is an important fight but democracy is not everyone playing by the same rules it's everyone co-creating the rules together that's right and changing the map changing the game it's almost like we've forgotten that the map and the game could change. And you see that with such examples of this where, you know, the number one thing might not be learning math skills. It might be unionizing, (laughs) you know, it might, you you know, it's never, it's never advised in a financial literacy course that one of the best ways to raise your wages is to unionize your industry. Mm -hmm. It's never advised that like starting a worker co-op or, you know, getting close with your alderman to have them change the social entitlement programs of your state or city is going to is gonna change things, or form a tenant union to deal with your late rent. I just see the same thing everywhere in schools, like the Grand Central Station of all these naturalizations and a freezing
1: of, of politics. So there's a really interesting thing to be said there. I don't want to cut off any questions that You might have. But I'm indexing a book right now by a a sociologist named uh, Michael Hartney, which is called How Policies Create Interest Groups. It's specifically about teachers unions. And I, being a lefty and a former teacher and a former member of a teachers unions union am just reflexively on the side of teachers unions and sort of against a lot of the reforms, obviously, that we've been talking about today around accountability and stuff. And pro like giving teachers more power. But one of the interesting, like I have a hard time arguing with his book though. He's an acolyte of Terry Moe, who like one of the authors with John Chubb of, what is it called? Markets, schools and American politics or something. The, The 1990 Brookings Institution book, which basically was like school choice is the answer to justice. And we need to like bring market principles to bear. And unions are one of the obviously Key obstacles in that following Friedman's work, etc. However, one of the thing, what, the thing that he is pointing out in his book uh, about teachers unions is that teachers unions, in fact, like I have become quite accustomed to be like to being like, well, you know, there's no money or hope in a project of sort of disagreeing with Bill Gates about what he wants to do with sort of education because these billionaire f- philanthropists just have so much more money and power and access to the to policymakers that they're going to get their way uh, regardless. And so like the unions are the little guys in this sort of struggle. And here are these like essentially dilettantes who are going to care about education for X number of years as they also care about malaria and whatever, and then are eventually going to move on leaving a bunch of wreckage in their wake. That has been a framework that I have adopted for myself. Certainly Hartney's book is like, it's not actually like that. Teachers unions are like the largest contributor to various PACs at the state level. They have a tremendous amount of state power and it's because during the 60s and 70s, the state basically began to subsidize them as part of their, like, like they're written into state laws and they have a seat at the negotiating table, partly because of the way that American labor law does sort of exclusive bargaining agency stuff. To that, I basically want to be like, this is a bigger problem with what John Levy, in his recent magisterial book *Ages of American Capitalism*, calls the broker state that uh, that emerged out of World War II. And so, like, there's not a way it seems to me of doing pluralism in a democratic sense that is also pluralism in sort of an interest group pluralism sense. You know, the cost of remaining of teachers unions surviving the sort of Red Scare era was that. They were like they were not allowed to talk about big social changes anymore because that's communism. What we need to talk about, what you can talk about is wages and working conditions. Those are the two things. And then those are exactly the things that teachers unions now are being hammered for. They're like, ah, your retirement benefits are too generous. I'm like, that was the trade-off. You didn't want to spend money on salaries. So like now you're like, wow, your retirement benefits are so much more generous than there are in the private sector. I'm like, well, private sector unions collapsed in the middle of the 20th century. It's it's like a divide and conquer sort of strategy. I would love to see us get back to, I mean, a kind of unionism that it was like pre-World War One, though ideally without all the street fighting. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so let me ask you now, I think just to turn a little bit to sort of the institution of school, because I think this is kind of like one of our big motivating questions is, is the, you know, the sort of interaction between like, the anarchist type critiques of the institution of school with, you know, obviously like the importance and potential for this kind of institution, which is like, honestly, maybe like one of the most socialistic institutions that we actually have. And I could kind of see a version of Campbell's law applying to institutions in general to be like, yes, if you set up an institution in society for a specific purpose, it's going to get distorted (laughs) over time (laughs) as to that purpose. Right. And so I guess the big question is just like for you on your vision and on your sort of larger democratic vision, does school still look like what it looks like now as an institution? Like, is there anything that we need to be thinking about it, you know, or like Why are we dividing kids up by grades? Like, do we need to have teachers follow people throughout the whole? Like, what what are kind of the broader institutional tensions that you see here? And and what's kind of your vision of that kind of stuff? So I like
1: I would love to credit myself with having more imagination than I do. But the the way that I met that I'm imagining schooling changing in my own work largely retains a lot of those things that you're talking about grade levels, individual class teachers, or at least let's say I'm agnostic on that. For the time being, I'm trying to imagine what else schooling can be in a society like ours that, let's say, changes as little as possible or that is able to sort of draw on the same sorts of ideological things that, you know, the whatever neoliberal elites are able to draw upon as well, but differently. So, one of the things that we have to grapple with, and I say we, like, as education professors or people who spend a lot of time thinking about education and society in general, is that schools have never worked well for everyone ever that like the institution of public schooling no matter how romantic we want to be about like the benefits of the neighborhood school and whatever it has always failed like a not insignificant percentage of the people who sort of attend those institutions, whether it's from denying access as in sort of segregation or enslavement, or whether it's through straight up like cultural, the destructive cultural assimilation stuff as in Indian residential schools, or whether it is simply like failing gifted and talented kids by sort of like artificially lowering the ceiling. These are all instances of institutional failure of one kind or another. And people have come at that from a couple of different perspectives i'm thinking now about like the unschooling thing on the one hand and about like a sort of evangelical homeschooling movement on the other end of let's say sort of the white political extreme but it's not just sort of a white phenomenon you see like freedom schools emerging in amid the urban north throughout the 50s and 60s etc whatever we don't have to get into the entire span but like unschooling and evangelical homeschooling are just a handy pair because the same sorts of parental interest in the goods of the child are at issue there. And they the same kind of distrust of the social institution that public schooling is, is motivating them. And the answers look remarkably the same or similar structurally, even though they're absolutely different in, in terms of content. That also isn't a direct answer to your question, but I'm since I'm losing track of where I am going, I'm going to just stop talking.
2: There's so much to talk about with schools.
0: Yeah. Well, let me let me ask you kind of what I think Jack Schneider said when I asked him about unschooling, which is I like, I think that if if I hope I'm not mischaracterizing this. People can go back and, and you know hit, hit me with it if I am. But I I think that basically what his answer on unschooling was was that unschooling basically like can work very well for kids with a lot of resources and with a lot of support and with, you know, like a uh, resource rich environments. And there are certain populations who like can make that happen. But my sense of what his kind of larger point was like, was like, we just like, we just can't do that for everybody because of a- an actual problem of scarcity. And we kind of got into this very interesting question of like, you know, this is part of what we're doing with multiple of our series is trying to figure out where scarcity actually is in society versus where scarcity is sort of imagined or used. Mm -hmm. And I think that his view was that there is actual scarcity in terms of educational resources and that actually if we want to do the most good with the resources that we have, we can't go full unschooling type situation. But maybe we can move towards something that looks more like kindergarten at at more levels, right something less structured but still institutional like you know you still have a place that you go, you still have classmates, but you don't have the sort of like you know extreme metrics that you're trying to hit and, and, and these kind of like very explicit goals or whatever and I think that's pretty consistent with what you've said. Yes. but I wonder if if like you have some thoughts on that Sure I have two kinds of thoughts. so like the first thing is like uh,
1: there's a question of scale. At work. The major idea of unschooling is that the child's interest dictates what happens and that like a parent or a teacher or like an instructional whatever is mainly there as a facilitator to have interesting conversations with or to transport the child into whatever nature we you know, there's a long lineage going back to Rousseau. There's something interesting to be said about the fact that unschooling always becomes popular at moments of intense social polarization, thinking about uh, Rousseau's uh, Amelie. But we don't need to go down that particular aspect of the rabbit hole. And on the other hand, in the early 20th century, you had a sort of more industrial model of public schooling called the Lancaster Method, which was essentially the idea that like, you'd have a teacher... And that teacher would teach a hundred students or something like that is what like you would want. But like they'd identify the 10 brightest, and really the teacher would directly teach this lesson to the 10 of them, and then these 10, blah, 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 blah. And so that way you get to everybody. But that was unsatisfactory. And it turns out that like the sense of what a class size should be like across like the kindergarten to 12th grade is plastic to an extent, but not infinitely so. And so like. There is sort of like a happy medium somewhere around the idea of like more than one and less than 100 would be a sort of an ideal like population of a given class. So this is a long way into the idea that I don't think anybody is proposing unschooling as like, here is what education just should be like, simply because... The scale on which it happens is really, it's not even one to one, like one adult to one child. It's more like six to one or something. If once you like get into like, oh, the child can go approach the astrophysicist to learn about, you know, that kind of thing. And the amount of uncertainty that's involved and somebody's got to be overseeing that, whoever the adult is who is protecting the child from the world so that the child can, you know, fulfill their interests in the like classical sort of negative education sense, cannot be doing anything else like it's too time intensive and labor intensive to do that kind of thing so you can't do that and have a job and so the idea that like there like this would exist for every individual child is that's where i think the scarcity issue comes in it's not even like society couldn't provide the resources it would be like we'd have to have an entirely different view of like there's no way to do that within The society that we currently have or can even sort of imagine, like, I'm trying to imagine, like, what it would be like for the labor force to just be cut in half and then be like, what would we prioritize in terms of producing whatever and like, so there's, so there's that issue, I I guess I'll stop there so like, to sort of sum up what I'm trying to say is that unschooling works. Precisely because it's an exceptional thing that people do and they can do that because they have the resources. But if we were to sort of adopt this like 1965 vision of social justice, there is no sense in which unschooling is the answer for sort of like writing historical wrongs or undoing the damage from bad history like that is not possible. I think. And and nor, again, do I think that anybody is seriously proposing that. Unschooling strikes me as one of the kinds of educational innovations that people get very excited about because it works for them or because the, the institution of public schooling has failed them so badly in particular ways in a way that unschooling sort of doesn't, that it's very possible to become sort of an evangelist for this. Like, this is good for everybody. But the harms that the institution of public schooling are doing are not as great for everybody and the benefits to be gained from unschooling are not the same for everybody, nor does everybody have, you know, the resources to do it.
2: I wanna ask a bit about the Burkean elements of ed theory you know, as the resident left Berkian here, okay, which is, nice. you know, and this is connected to the last statement because, you know, you're talking about resources, which is an interesting thing that this schools are also like a place where social resources are distributed, like lunch, yeah. for example, mm-hmm. and yes. a caring adults and social capital and all these things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as the looking look at, at this institution, you know, it starts with this original purpose, like I want to transmit skills and information to a set of students in this local area the institution has rolled around through history and gathered so many purposes almost innumerable purposes just to list them Mm -hmm. off it's it's like it's a place where you learn how to date it's a place where you design your locker You know, who knows if that's Mm -hmm. an important part of school. It's a place where you learn how to have positive and negative. You learn about all these different types of adults. That was one funny thing about school. It's like, oh, that's the type Mm -hmm. of adult not to trust. That's the type of adult to trust. (laughs) It's a place where you join sports teams. It's a place where you learn music. It's a place where you uh, learn about waking up every day. Who knows if that's the most important part? You have to wake up and go somewhere every day. Maybe that's half of what school does for you. And we have this hubris it's very, uh, you know, Burke would say, you know, the centralized, you know, Burke and his, his like would say the centralizing liberals, liberal progressives saying that they can identify what the purpose of this is and measure it. What hubris mm-hmm. to say it's, right. you know, it's the math and reading that's the most important part of school. Right. And as soon as they start optimizing around that, you're going to lose all these other purposes because you never know what the actual purpose is of an institution. It's a mysterious yes. thing that we should hold reverence. Exactly. What do you think about that? Like, what is, what's your take on on that aspect that school has innumerable purposes that we can't even know?
1: Well, I think that's, that's exactly right. I've never really thought of myself as a left Burkean, but I find massively appealing the characterization that you just had. I would add to that though. So like Burke has this like reverence for the way that things have become which is just to say like a status quo bias, which is, you know, fine in my the idea that like, how dare we presume that we know better than the whole history of this institution, what this institution is for. I find that quite appealing. I would say, though, that institutions still have to be answerable to us. This is the way in which like, I think that the idea that like some centralizing liberal whatever being like this is the point and we're going to measure this and like that's how we know that like we're going to arrive at justice after some yada yada period. I think that that is dead wrong, but it also can't simply be the idea that like oh because this is what school has been, this is what it must always be. This is where like my own sort of predilections turn towards the local keeping sort of a highly pluralistic vision of who is impacted by schools in particular ways. I think about the role that, that schools play for community. School is is all those things that you said, the place where You know, one learns to date, one plays sports, one goes to dances together. One learns what social class is and what like racial and linguistic differences mean and that kind of thing for better and for worse. But school is also the thing that I have to drive real slow past when I want to go to the grocery store. You know, (laughs) there's all it's it has this it has a life in a community, too, in which it's the thing that I like. It's where parents who would otherwise have very little to do with each other sort of like happen to meet each other while they're waiting for their kindergartner to get out of class. So it has. It has this gathering material function in a local community, and that stuff matters as well. So this is just to say that schools need to be subject to change as things around them change and as various problems are raised with respect to the way that schools have been. But that needs to be done in active and ongoing conversation with the people that those changes affect. And those will not just be teachers or students or parents. Those will be pretty much everybody. And so this is like, you know, there's that thing, somebody, this was a saying that popped up a few years ago or whatever I encountered a few years ago, that democracy is just endless meetings. That's kind of the vision that uh, I have. There's, you can take shortcuts, but those shortcuts, much like Campbell's law will only make things worse. And the, pri- the, the price to be paid for for getting things right is constantly paying attention, which means constantly having
0: other people pay attention to what's going on as well, constantly paying attention together. Maybe I can draw this back. T- tell me if this is part of what you're saying or, or maybe consistent with what you're saying to draw it back to the unschooling point, because I think that one argument that you might be making in the book and about accountability is like, look, you know, we have schools, Maybe we need to have schools. If we're going to have this institution, it has to be accountable somehow. And the right way to approach that is through this kind of democratic view. Another thing that you could say, though, is, you know, actually one of the reasons why we need to have schools, one of the reasons why schools are good, why this institution is good is because it provides this forum for democracy and for social interaction and for community, both with the parents and the kids. Like that's actually, that's a plus in its column, not just a necessary thing that we need to check off
1: yeah i think those two things in fact are deeply consonant with one another the thing the reason that accountability struck stuck out to me is a thing as a a good sort of pivot point uh, to talk about it's not only because you know accountability was is has just been part of the education discourse for like two decades now but also because if we're going to commit to the idea that like doing accountability means involving People in sort of di- making judgments about whether a school is doing its job. It also means involving people in discussions about what it means for a school to do its job well. So it's a constant sort of like that's the sense in which it's also like Calvin Ball, in which like you're trying to make a judgment about a thing, but the thing is being changed at, like in the process of judgment. This is also deeply indebted. As yet another shout out to another awesome book that I love, to Linda Zerilli's A Democratic Theory of Judgment, from which I blatantly stole the title of my own book. So, yes, there's this whole vision of sort of judging that uses the school as a medium, but judging in this sort of Zerillian, Arendtian, democratic sense really means acknowledging the vulnerability of your own value system to the value systems of those around you. Nobody has the right to sort of impose. A value system on you, but you're also can't be made immune from it, and or like disown the fact that you still have to live in a community with somebody whose values might be different than yours, and you have to be in constant sort of contact with them conversationally about what matters to us as an us, not just what matters to me or what matters to you. I got off the rails there a little bit at the end. (laughs) That was great.
2: I was just going to say just just to tie that up. It's you know it's just very resonant that. I do think it's a real, I think we underestimate uh, shortcuts and inertia as the cause of politics. We always think it's always kind of class interests or, or different interest groups fighting. Sometimes it's just, you know, I think there is a, and I bet, you know, Illich and others that we've cited before care about this. It's that we want permission to not think about something, not pay attention to something. And I bet, you know, if you go to the average place where people are you know, clicked into wanting their school to be good, you know, the less engaged way that might be a shortcut would be, oh, just let's I just want this to live up to what the experts think a school should be. And they're like, oh, you know, oh the rank this is why we're obsessed with the rankings, you know, some or, random Or I just want this to look like what
0: I went through.
2: Yes. Yeah. Which yes. Is the inertia is the inertia things. way. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, exactly. it's either it's either I want it to be exactly the same or I want it to conform to the elite technocrats the two uh, sides of the polarized (laughs) fight
1: yeah I I think you I think you hit the nail on the head the idea that there are shortcuts to thinking and that this is an incentive in its own right and it can go either way like this school seems to be using whatever McGuffey readers that they were using in the 1930s when men were men in school with school Uh, so like it must be doing a good job or just being like look it's great schools rating is eight out of ten on whatever and that's like so So nobody will think I'm a bad parent if I send my kid here. Like, that matters to people. Or, like, I I can be relatively confident that I am doing what I need to do in order to ensure that my kid will not graduate into precarity of one kind or another, which is
0: deeply understandable and also deeply wrong. (laughs) So... I think that's, I think that's a good segue into something else that I wanted to ask you about. I've got about 10 more things I want to ask you about, but I don't think we have time for all of them. But here's, here's one that I think that segues into, particularly when you're talking about sort of like these shortcuts, the inertial tricks, and also the relation to other social sites of inequality. Like if you're talking about great schools, you're also talking about real estate, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: hundred percent. So
0: one of the questions that I kind of have broadly over this whole thing is like, and i think the way i think the way that i put it to to jack schneider was basically like there are uh, like a lot of people who write about this from every different direction see school as this very important aspect of society and pro- and probably the vehicle for all kinds of different potential social changes you know whether that's coming from the free market folks or whether that's coming from the communists or whatever right it's like if we want to change society we're going to do it through school and One of the questions that I've had is just like, how much does this really matter, right? Like, you know, I'm in my mid-30s now. I know a bunch of people who had a whole bunch of very different educational experiences. Some people who did not make it past, you know, relatively early grades as we'd consider them. Some people who, you know, have PhDs. Some people went to alternative schools, public schools. We're all kind of the same at this point uh it's not something where i can really differentiate between people based on what their ch- their childhood ed- education experience was especially like does school really make that much of a difference i other than other than as a site for community and democracy as you see it but like for kids it it would be so
1: difficult to tease out the specific ways in which school matters to kids generally I think it would probably be wrong to say that in every instance school is some kind of necessary condition to like kids arriving at a certain adult destiny. You know what you were saying reminded me very strangely of what Obama's uh first education secretary Arne Duncan, like the king of neoliberals, was saying in his speeches, in his policy speeches leading up to uh Race to the Top. He asked he's he's basically like, "Look, I I did not grow up wealthy. I grew up in a in a neighborhood that like that was violent and relatively poor and blah blah blah. And yet from my group of friends there emerged like me and a Hollywood movie star and like a billionaire philanthropist or whatever. What can account for that? And his answer is basically like, you know, my mom was sort of like this neighborhood where we had this like caring adult who was deeply involved in our lives and uh and let us believe in ourselves and and like corrected us when we screwed up and that kind of stuff and that set all of us up for success and he's like that's why we need good teachers And i'm like your anecdote literally says why we don't need good <laughs> teachers like oh we need our good moms or whatever right. <laughs> oh, that's the most frustrating part about that whole arnie duncan logic in general also nicholas Kristof's problem no
2: it was like live it, the 2010s the the 2000s and early 2010s was living in alice in wonderland <laughs> of,
1: of education <laughs> it was really was it was crazy <laughs> crazy assumption anyway so like the thing to say about that is that like whatever we say schools do for kids in particular is also doable for kids through other means. Again, this is like the the unschooling argument. It's like, and for a variety of reasons and with respect to a variety of sort of value positions can be done better through other means than through traditional public schools. However taking sort of all things into account, including the needs of sort of like a modern industrial or post-industrial economy that requires like adult participation in the labor market to some sort of extent, you know, it's like the best solution to, you know, how do we provide socialization, something like human capital and social capital, intellectual stimulation, conversation, et cetera, to as many kids as possible. You know, it's the best answer to that sort of conundrum, except for all the others. (laughs) So that's the
2: another angle at this. I'd love to hear your thoughts on. And this whole podcast is just us. Giving uh, half baked mm-hmm. ideas to experts, yeah. and then they that's tell right. us the fully it's the baked, best kind of podcast, and you respond with a fully baked idea. Or I hope that's hey, not my job. People have been talking, people have been saying exactly you thought you had an original insight, Pete and Sparky, yeah, but the this version. has been talked about for 200 years or
1: something. For the record, that is also my experience of just being an academic in general. I'll be like, oh, I've got it, and then I'm like, oh god, Darn damn it, it. Stanley Darn it. Some, Cabell already exists. Some <laughs>
2: <laughs> random Japanese book in 1847 already said this, or whatever. So, you know, yeah, one thought is, you know, what's your take on the Deweyan idea of basically blurring the lines between what is inside school and what is outside school. So, make school more resemble life and make life more resemble school and, you know, there's an educational moment at the town hall meeting, there's an educational moment at the store, there's an educational moment during summer camp, there's an educational moment at the dining room table. And the entire network of educational moments is your schooling.
0: And part of this, I imagine, also goes out the other way, too. Like the sort of modern school, the school can also be an educational institution for adults in the community as well, right? Yes. So
1: that is that is an enormous question. So I'm a philosopher of education technically, which means that I have to have a take on John Dewey uh, <laughs> in particular okay. and like a relatively robust take. I'm just gonna situate myself within the world of educational uh within the philosophy of education, which is that like I'm less pro John Dewey than many others, but not for any anything having to do with your exact question. I think that the thing that Dewey gets really right is more or less in the description that you have that there isn't it's like so the the issue that I have with the way that John Dewey is often used by philosophers of education and especially when we try to like get into sort of the practice of education is as sort of like a prescriptive recipe for what schools ought to look like. And granted, like in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, particularly like the child and the curriculum, some of his other stuff that he was writing right around like 1899 and whatever, he is he is really bemoaning what he calls traditional education of like desks and rows and just passive learners and all that kind of stuff. And he's contrasting it with something that he would like to see emerge and what he does see emerging around him in terms of a more sort of student-centered, experiential, aesthetic focus. There's a real way that like you could just go straight through the philosophy of John Dewey to that thing I was talking about where ethics, aesthetics, and politics are all one thing. Not that I want to travel down that road, but I find Dewey to be at his best, or I find Dewey to be at his most readable, which is kind of saying a lot.
2: Worst prose in American history.
1: (laughs) Oh my God when when I take him as being descriptive of a thing that already exists, the fact of the matter is that we don't just learn in schools, uh, that we do a lot of our best learning through sort of informal experiences. And what one runs into as sort of a policymaker or somebody who thinks about educational systems is that it's easy to be like, you know, the informality of the learning that you do outside of school is just a, you know, a contingent condition. Like there's a way that we could sort of expand schooling to include that and thus plan for it and measure it and blah, 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 blah. But and this is just my personal take. I sort of come to believe that that's not possible, that the informality of informal education and those very valuable sort of learning experiences that one has in non-explicitly educational contexts is essential to the learning experience that you have. You couldn't replicate it deliberately if you wanted to, because part of the value is that it sort of happens behind your back or like you don't realize the educational value of an experience that you're having until after it's over. And so I I am a little like Dewey, like goes away from me a little bit when he like violates that little like Burkean kind of thing and seems to segue into an idea that like what we should do as teachers or facilitators is plan a, a like a linear scope of all these experiences that will end up with the student like focused on the student's interests, that will end up like producing the kind of student that we want. And I'm like, I just don't think that level of planning is possible. But if that level of planning is not possible, then what is necessary? And this is where this sort of democratic theory of educational accountability comes in. What is necessary are like robust lines of communication and response that, so that we can be like, yes, that was good or no, that was not great more immediately than like, you know, test data is available or whatever.
2: There, there, in short, there can be no organized fun. Yeah, you can't, exactly. you can't plan informality. Oh Formalizing informality is hubristic.
1: It is like <laughs> the, the promise of whatever a melon
0: ball party in Severance or yes. something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's organized fun. Yeah, it can be the opposite of fun. <laughs> all right, I think that is an I think that is an excellent <laughs> an excellent note and a wrap up to to end on. So you know, thank you, thank you very much, Derek Gottlieb, for for coming on and joining us on on Rabbit Hole. This has been really, really interesting. It's been a pleasure. I'm glad my uh, baby slept all the way through. It <laughs> was fantastic. Same here. <laughs> Do you want to um, say, you know, is there anywhere where folks can find you on, on social media or anything, aside from going out and, and getting your book, A Democratic Theory of Educational Accountability? Actually, no, not at this point. I like I left Twitter about a year ago for my own sanity, Was.
1: basically. Yeah. I I like I couldn't delete it from my phone and have that be it. It turns out I needed to get all the way off. So no, there is no place to find me as, except for uh, looking up those books. Democratic Theory of Educational Accountability. I have a book on Shakespeare called... Oh my God, I can't remember what the title of my own <laughs> book is. It's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, oh my God, I can't, like, the dissertation was called Common Nonsense.
0: Are we talking about skepticism and belonging in Shakespeare's comedy? Yes, yes. skepticism and belonging in Shakespeare's comedy. That's the title of the book. Thank you.
1: <laughs> Jesus. My I God. think that's an honorable my earlier thing book on that it, you've too. written
2: so much, you're publishing so much, you forget your thing. I think that's a like, good, that's, uh, That's um. what do they call it? That's... That's a flex. It,
0: it, it, it also it also reflects like the little thing. I don't know if this is the case for book titles I mean, you guys have both published books. I haven't published any books, but like they don't let you choose your article headlines. Do they let you choose your book titles? No. I mean... I could have pushed back at some point.
1: They like, in general, like they were like, okay, I hear that this was the title of your dissertation. Here's why I think that wouldn't work as well as a book title. What do you think of this instead? I'm like, that's basically the same. Like the dissertation was common nonsense, colon skepticism and belonging in Shakespeare's comedy. And then like, you know, Wittgenstein scholars were like, yeah, nonsense kind of has this technical sense here. So maybe you don't want to use that. And they were like, what if we just went with skepticism? I'm like, good, that's fine. Or like the 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 first education book, came out of a piece that was called race to the top and the senses of good teaching which is simultaneously more specific to this education policy and broader in terms of the way we relate to our concepts and the ultimate title was education reform and the concept of good teaching which you know probably does better in terms of SEO so yeah. <laughs> that's that was my experience with choosing book titles
2: Derek, this has been a amazing conversation. We're so grateful uh, for you coming down the rabbit hole with us, and as expected, you have lived up to the spirit of the podcast, where it has opened up further rabbit holes for future episodes. Yes, thank you for that.
1: It has been awesome to talk to you guys. Uh, thank you for having me on. I'm like happy to contribute to, you know, an evolving Warren
0: <laughs> as uh, as it goes. Rabbit Hole Podcast is produced by Dan Thorne. The music is by Danny Radley. If you enjoyed this episode of Rabbit Hole, please, please support us at patreon.com slash rabbit hole podcast. Help us keep all of our episodes open to everyone. We can't do it without you. If you didn't enjoy this episode of Rabbit Hole, try another episode. Maybe we had an off day.